From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Rob Fay in for Jill. Of course, the big news yesterday happened just as Jazz was sitting down in this chair. The announcement that the former prime minister of our country, Brian Mulroney, had passed away at the age of 84. And we've been very fortunate to have a number of guests come on this show, or at least on this station over the last several hours, and reminisce about the former prime minister. And many great stories coming from those conversations, politicking aside. And uh, I'd like to bring on our next guest, who wrote a beautiful article, uh, a very poignant article in the Toronto Sun, that you can see at torontosun.com. Warren Kinsella, kind enough to uh, join us here, former special advisor to Jean Chrétien and founder of the Daisy Group. Good afternoon, Mr. Kinsella. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and I loved your opening quote. I thought it was, well, not a quote, but an opening thought. The biggest achievement in politics, the only achievements, really are the ones involving risk. Is that one of the many things that people will remember former Prime Minister Mulroney for? I think so, you know, and we used to observe him across the aisle. I was Jean Chrétien's special assistant, and we all secretly admired him because he was such a skillful politician. And, um, you know, you can, I guess, survive in politics by playing it safe. But the great ones, you know, the ones that we remember are the ones who take a risk uh, to their legacy or their reputation or their reelection prospects. And Mulroney did, like over and over, with free trade, with his courageous position on South Africa. You know, on any number of issues, he wasn't afraid to challenge the status quo. And that's what you want to see in your politicians. And that's why I think so many people are sad to see him go. Would it be fair to say that Jean and a couple of other people in cabinet looked at him and said, boy, if I ever get the opportunity to take power or take on a different portfolio, that I want to take a page out of that book? I think so. I mean, Chrétien, you know, had a had a different style. I mean, they were both Quebecers. So they understood Quebec. They understood the country. I think both of them. But, I, you know, I think in Mulroney's case, as is the case now with Justin Trudeau, you know, in this business, in the politics business, you get about eight years. That's about it. And at that point, you know, people get kind of tired of seeing your face. They want you to move on. And I think Mulroney was smart enough to know that it was time to go. And, you know, he made his decision to resign in, in 93, and then Kim Campbell took over, and we all know what happened after that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's an important part of political skill, which Mulroney had in a, a abundance, which is, you know, know when to show up, but also know when to leave. Do you remember, and I'd love to get your insight on this, in the final weeks and days, I remember some of the media really taking Brian Mulroney to task for, you know, what he had accomplished and or they're not accomplished. But do you remember the final days and weeks before he finally said, I've had enough here? And just what the, uh, the feeling was around Ottawa at that time, like as much as he had divided, he had also built an incredible legacy. He had. And, you know, yes, I was on the hill every single day uh, working for Kretzian, and we'd watch him across the aisle, you know, and we'd look for cracks, you know, we'd look for some indication that he was unhappy. Like at one point he was down to 12 percentage points in support, 12%. I mean, I think the inflation rate was higher, but he never lost his confidence. He never lost, you know, that, that sense that he knew what he was doing. And most importantly, he didn't lose any members of his caucus or his cabinet. They all stuck with him, even when he was that unpopular. And I think that also is testament to the man's political skills, 
that he was able to hold on to his team, even though, you know, they'd kind of reached that far down. So he, um, but when he, he went, I don't think we were surprised. We were a little bit disappointed because we wanted to have, you know, the big face off between, between Kretschia and Mulroney. It would have been like the Canadians and the Maple Leafs back in the day. But it was not to be, and, and Moroni moved on to the private sector. Your article in the Toronto Sun that can be seen at torontosun.com today uh, under the opinions and columnist column, uh, you talk about a call to Jean Chrétien during a health scare and that there were quiet wishes whenever a liberal was going through a personal hardship and that never made it to the mainstream media, but it was something that you thought was uh, very special about Brian Mulroney. And you, when you, you ask people, everybody on the Hill had stories like this where, you know, they were getting a health scare, they were going through some tragedy in their family, or, or just whatever, you know, you pick up the phone, and there was the voice, you know, this, this baritone of Brian Maroney, which was pretty unmistakable. And, um, you know, I, I remember picking up the phone, and there's Brian Maroney saying, you know, telling me to pass on good wishes to my to my boss, to Kretschian. And he didn't have to do that, you know, and but he did. And I think it it was an indication that he knew what all the great ones know, which is politics is about people. You know, it's about caring about people and you got to love people to really do well in politics. Cause you know, you're not getting in it to be rich. You know, <laughs> if you come into <laughs> politics, rich, you're a crook. Like he, he was somebody who loved people of all stripes, of all backgrounds. And we duke it out, you know, and we could get pretty tough with each other on the campaign trail and otherwise, but Christian Reedy uh, and Mulroney, I think, were of the same kind of approach, which is it's a people business and you got to love people. And Warren, final question. I'm going to steal Paige out of Jazz's book. Uh, Jazz yesterday asked a couple of people reminiscing this question. How do you think Brian Mulroney would do in today's political age? I mean, you know his thunderous voice and his policies, but the game has changed so much. How do you think he would have fared today? I don't think he would have dug it. And, uh, I mean, he understood it. And same with Kretschian. Kretschian was on the Hill answering questions about Moroni last night right after the news came out. But it, it has changed. You're absolutely right. I think a big part of that is social media. And people, you know, there's just anger, right, everywhere. It's not just in the United States with Trump people. It's everywhere. And, um, you know, I Moroni kind of represented a... I guess a kinder and gentler era where people in politics, you know, would disagree passionately, but at the end of the game, you know, take their jerseys off and go and have a beer together. And that was the kind of guy he was. And and I think we're all going to miss him for it. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing about uh, some of the things that come out from his funeral and all the people that are still speaking about him. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending some time with me today. So Warren, thank you for your thoughts and let's do this again under better circumstances. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, Elon Musk is suing Microsoft-backed OpenAI and its CEO, Sam Altman, among others, alleging that they abandoned the company's founding mission, which was to develop artificial intelligence for benefit of humanity broadly. Well, I guess that's not the case right now. So when we talk tech, there's only one guy that we like to talk tech with. That is Andy Barrar, our tech expert from Handy Andy Media. Andy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Well, let's get into this. I hate getting into court cases and all this stuff, but uh, Elon is basically holding OpenAI's feet to the flame, saying, hey, this isn't what you said. Yeah, this is actually a really juicy court case that I'll be watching very closely because I don't think a lot of listeners realize that back in 2015, when OpenAI was founded, 
Elon Musk was a co-founder. He was recruited by Sam Altman. They said, hey, we're going to start this uh, new artificial intelligence company, and we want you to be part of it. So Elon said, okay. And when they built that company, when it was designed, the, the mission was, as you mentioned, create and develop artificial intelligence for the benefit of humanity broadly. Now, everything changed in November of 2022 when they released ChatGP3. So almost eight, eight, about eight years later, or six to eight years later, they introduced ChatGPT. We all used it. It blew up, uh, became the fastest uh, downloaded and growing consumer application in history. And then with ChatGPT4, they made it for for profit. So if you wanted to use their, you know, next generation of AI, you had to pay. Meanwhile, Microsoft was watching the, the growth of ChatGPT, invested $13 billion into this company because they thought and they strategically thought this will give us a one-up on Google if we integrate this into our Bing search engine and our Microsoft Edge web browser. Hmm. So when you are browsing on Microsoft Edge using that Bing search engine, it's using ChatGPT to give you answers. So rather than going to ChatGPT to get an answer, you can just use the web browser and get that. And that has really put them ahead. But now Microsoft's making money. And this is why Elon Musk is very angry because he left the board in 2018. He saw the dangers of, of AI at that time and he left. But now OpenAI has turned around and is making profit, namely for Microsoft. And Elon Musk is not happy about that. Well, uh, Musk back in 2018 said that, quote, AI is more dangerous than nukes, which uh, was a pretty jarring statement back then. You look at the state of AI, and I'll be full you know, disclosure. I use AI a lot more than I ever thought I would. But it's usually for things like, uh, you know, make me a logo or, you know, tell me about something I don't know about. But I've never had to pay for it yet. And I'm, I'm curious to know uh, how much, when, when I think of the limit of what AI is going to ask, is it always going to be a $8.99 prescription or subscription? Is it going to be $20.99? Are we going to end up in the ranges of cable TV and things like that where it could be $29, bucks? Like I, I'm trying to think where the limit is or the sweet spot for AI to just continue to gain customers. Well, we've seen with software, you know, there's software as a subscription service. Back in the day, you would buy the software, say at like Future Shop or Best Buy, and you would install it onto your computer and you never have to buy it again. But then they made it a subscription. So Microsoft Office, for example, you have to pay either yeah. monthly or annually to use that software. That's where AI is headed now. Yeah, that's, you're that's what have, I thought, it, Andy. I'm it, glad I asked. It's the new Netflix, Rob. <laughs> it's like the new Netflix where you have to pay. Now, think about it. When a like you have to put yourself in Elon Musk's shoes back in 2015, nobody was talking about AI except for researchers because it was in the early days of AI. I if if I was Elon Musk and they approached me, I'm, and they're like, "We want to create this artificial intelligence for the benefit of humanity." Immediately, I would be like, this is like the Wikipedia of AI. Because look at Wikipedia. It gets so much traffic, but it doesn't make a profit. Anybody can, you know, add to it. It's like this open human humanities encyclopedia. Now, we could have had that with AI, with open AI. It's even called open AI. They need to change it to closed AI <laughs> because essentially that's what it is, Rob. It's closed. Microsoft owns it. They're using this as their, you know, golden nugget to compete against Google. Google totally dropped the ball on all this. They have their AI Gemini, which they recently uh, rebranded, and it's not doing very well. And so OpenAI has the, the head start. Elon Musk is not happy. He has his own AI now too, XAI, which he is, is part of his X brand. 
so it's a very interesting court case. I don't know how what what OpenAI's defense is going to be to this because they stated when they founded that company, this was supposed to be for the benefit of humanity. Now it's for the benefit of Microsoft. Yeah, it's going to be the interesting one. And I can't imagine they're happy that Elon Musk, who's got the money to see this through to the end, uh, is taking them to court. I really wanted to quickly ask you this, Andy. Uh, Andy Brar, by the way, our tech sec- expert joining us here on The Joe Bennett Show. Figure AI. This is, uh, of course, developing general purpose humanoid robots in its generalist terms. Uh, when I hear the word robot and I think of you know, I guess, immersing them into our culture. Should I be scared? Should I think that this is great? I mean, we think of all of these different resources right now that are understaffed, including our healthcare industry. Is this a solution or is this a a problem in the making? Well, Rob, have you seen those cleaning robots that they're using in like cafeterias yep. now where they'll they'll come around, you put your tray on it, it will take the trays back into the back, into the kitchen. Even says you know, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I see this all the time when I'm in Vegas for the uh, big tech show there that I go to uh, in January. You know, it's going to be, we're going to see robots. In in fact, Elon Musk, I don't know if you've seen his robot called Optimus. Uh, Awesome name because I was a big fan of Transformers Mm -hmm. back in the day when I was a kid. (laughs) And apparently Elon Musk was as well. Uh, It's a very, he's trying to create a human-like robot. Um, That's the future, you know, and it opens up a huge bag of worms because if you look in Asia right now, people are like going to fall in love with these robots, you know, like there's, there was one news story of somebody who was trying to marry a robot. And when you when you when you combine a robot with artificial intelligence where it can understand you and like you could you're almost going to develop feelings for it. And people are. And that is a scary proposition when you think about the future. Yeah, I I just I understand that there's a demographic out there that could really, truly, you know, take advantage of this and, you know, for even companionship and what have you. But I just wonder where that limit is and if the government is going to be able to keep those limits in place uh, as they start to become more evolved. Andy, thank you for this. Every time you come on, I'm better for it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again very soon. Thanks, Rob. Imagine owning a small business in a bustling neighborhood and then suddenly finding out that you've been added to a business improvement association without actually having the chance to vote as to whether or not you want to be a part of it. And oh yeah, it's going to cost you hundreds of dollars to help prop up that association. That's the case right here in Vancouver along Main Street, where several blocks stuffed with small business suddenly found out that they were in a club without actually saying they wanted to be. One of those businesses is uh, Neptune Records. Great little shop. If you want to go in and finger through the vinyls, you can. Ben Frith is uh, part of the family that owns Neptune Records. Kind enough to join me here on the Jill Bennett Show. Ben, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, no problem. I know that it was just kind of a sloppily placed, um, I guess, notification right around Christmas time that was to let all businesses know, hey, there's going to be a a vote upcoming. But I got to think that this is still a really big surprise for a lot of people that didn't even realize that this Improvement Association was looking to expand. You know, it's really unfortunate. And and a lot of the businesses actually don't know the costs associated with it because that information was only conveyed to landlords, which had the option to pass it along to their tenants, but in most cases, that was not actually told to most tenants. So they, a lot of people don't actually understand what it's going to cost them. What will it cost? I mean, I'm, is it hundreds? Is it thousands per year? It, it depends on the business. You know, there's a business on our block that I think that they're looking at about 4000 a year for that one. Uh, you know, we're looking in several hundred for ours. Uh, it really depends on your square footage and your land assessment. So the association in the city obviously coming back saying, listen, the expansion is just a pilot. There's an opportunity for review after two years. 
My question is, why would they charge you for those two years if it's going to be a pilot? I mean, if they want to see if it's going to work, why not have them foot the bill? And then if it works, then, yeah, you can start paying dues. You know, I, I wish that was the case. It's, it's actually not even a pilot. What it is is the entire BIA comes into uh, the re- renewal in two years. So in order for us to reject our expansion in two years, it's not just us that have to reject it. It's the entirety of the business improvement area. So instead of dealing with you know 180 or so businesses, you actually are dealing with you know, several hundred then. And it's, it's next to impossible to get rid of it once you have it. So. You know, what I find interesting, and I used to work up at Nat Bailey Stadium, so I know Main Street between 19th and 29th real well, is the fact that on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, City Council unanimously approved the southward expansion of that Mount Pleasant business improvement area. So my question is, were they looking at a certain number and maybe if you didn't vote that it just counted as a yes? Yeah, so unfortunately, the letter that was sent out uh, basically outlined uh it made it sound basically like you're getting the, the expansion. And the very last page at the bottom, it says, you, uh, in order to reject it, you must send us a letter uh, saying you're rejecting it. And if you do not send it in, you are counted as a yes vote. Uh, unfortunately, there were also letters like there was a, a massive petition with, you know, I think it was 150 or so businesses that had rejected it. And we sent that in as well. And uh, unfortunately, council didn't accept that. Anything that looked like a form letter was rejected as well. So it's not even just a matter of uh, you know not hitting whatever the threshold was with what they counted, but they didn't count most votes. So it's uh, it's really a flawed process. You and uh, and and the requirements were not outlined in the letter that was sent to us. There was further parameters that they added without letting us know. And they had adequate time to notify us as well, and they, they chose not to. It's a really interesting conversation because I know that you guys already have a bit of a, a community within that neighborhood that goes around and takes care of some things, you know, cleaning up the street, making, things, making sure everything looks pretty. It's a beautiful walk, especially in the summertime. What added value would the BIA even bring to that neighborhood? You know, I'm really trying to find that out. You know, they do do garbage pickup, which is, which is a great service for sure. Um, and you know, they have graffiti removal programs. However, most businesses don't know this. The city actually gives you two free cans of paint every single year for graffiti removal. Uh, you just literally have to phone 311. Uh, you know, they, they say there's security. I've yet to see any security in any part of the existing BIA. Uh, I, I really don't know what they're talking about. I've asked other businesses that are within it. They say that it doesn't exist. Um, but the big thing is that they push is that they have marketing. And they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on marketing. But uh, if you look at the socials, the engagement levels are very low. I, I don't see the value. You know, most of the businesses in this area have a higher uh, social media engagement than the, the conglomerate. So hmm. you know, I just don't see the value for it. And, you know, the other thing, oh, there's so many questions I have for you. The other thing that I think <laughs> of is, uh, are you just damned if you do, damned if you don't? Like, do you have recourse to get out of this? Or are you guys going to fight it? Or are you just going to accept your fate? You know, we really don't, uh, we're, we're looking at what the path forward is at this point. Uh, you know, if there's a way that we can, you know, further try and get out of this, we will, for sure, uh, because we don't want it. Uh, and once you're in it, it's really hard to get out. And, uh, you know, future businesses, it's just it's a hard expense. You know, a lot of people, they start their business, they really work it out. They've saved for their whole lifetime to make this thing happen. Then all of a sudden, you know, they've, they're barely making it get by. And all of a sudden you have this new bill for this fee for something that you really don't even want a part of and you can't stop it. Mm. It's, uh, it's just not, uh, it's not fair and the voting process is just undemocratic. You know, I think, I think all of us that are opposed, 
if there was an actual fair vote and the, the determination was that the consensus of the area wants it, you know, that's fine. You know, that, if, if that's what the area feels is best for the area, that's great. But when we feel like our voices are not heard and that we're not having a choice, it's just not fair. And, and Ben, final question for you. You mentioned that it was the landlords who were notified. Does that mean that the landlord essentially has to pay the fee and then that fee's passed on to you? Or is it they're notified, but it's on your bill? Uh, they're notified. So they notified the businesses and the landlords, but the businesses were not told how much they were paying. Only the landlords were told the estimate of what their increase would be for that particular year. And uh, so in the, the letter that they sent to the landlords, because we, we own our buildings, so we have the letter as well. Uh, it tells you, don't worry, you can pass it on to your tenant because almost everyone's on a triple net lease. So they would be in t- they would be required to pay it. Wow. But uh, yeah. Ben, what a story. We'll keep an eye on this for you, but thank you for uh, shining light on it, and I hope you and your family at Neptune Records are doing good, and uh, keep selling the good vinyls, will you? It's appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show, live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. 